This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Dot Plot episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. We're here with Elizabeth Spires. Hi. And we are going to talk about dot plots. We are going to talk about the Fed and how important it is and how it communicates and why it's communicating with this weird thing called a dot plot and what a dot plot is. You will learn all about that. We are going to talk about Lena Khan, who runs the FTC and why she's going after Microsoft. We are going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried and U.S. extraterritoriality. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on holiday parties. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So let's start this week with the Fed, which raised rates again, half a point, which we're on such a crazy tightening cycle right now that half a point seems low. It's like, wow, okay. Um, But more interestingly, they did this thing called a dot plot. And so that was their way of telling the rest of us in cute little data viz form just what we can expect from interest rates over the next year. Um, Emily, what can we expect from interest rates over the next year? They're going to go up a little bit more. But not a lot more. <laughs> not a lot more. Yeah, I think they'll be, maybe, the prediction is around 5%. So so this is the way the dot plot works, is that what they do is they poll all of the voting members of the Federal Open Market Commission, and they say, where do you think the Fed funds rate is going to be at the end of 2023? And then they also say, in the long term. But let's put the long term thing to one side for a minute. Um, and then they all say where they think it's going to be. And for every vote, they give it a little dot. And if you average where the dots are, it comes to 5.1%. And Elizabeth, you have been reading about dot plots for many years. They've been, they were introduced by Ben Bernanke as a way to do this thing called forward guidance, where he, where he was like, look, everyone in the FOMC thinks that rates are going to be low for a really, really long time. So you can trust the rates are going to be low and invest over the long term. Of late, the Fed folks have been a little bit less upbeat about the dot plot. They, they, they think that there's too much attention paid to it. What is their beef with the dot plot? Why are they having second thoughts about it? Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I've got the dot plot in front of me right now. And what's sort of astonishing about it is if you look at the predictions for 2025, the range is huge. There, there's somebody who thinks it's going to be 5.7. And on the lower end, it's, it's closer to 2. And so when you look at the, that sort of disparity between what the sentiment is regarding what people think is going to happen, it sort of calls into question the, the entire exercise. Because it, it sort of says, well, nobody knows. Well, I mean, I think that's useful information. I don't think it does call into question the, the entire exercise. I, I, w- I would push back on that and say, um, if you have a wide range of predictions for 2025, year-end 2025, which is a long way away and a lot can happen between now and then, um, we what what you learn from that is the very useful information that, FOMC members have no idea what's going to be happening to interest rates between, you know, basically in the years 2024 and 2025. That's useful to know, right? In when the dot plot was saying that interest rates would be very, very low for many years to come, and there was much more certainty and the dots were more tightly grouped, that also was useful to know. There was a clear consensus on the Fed, and the Fed was moving in a certain direction and making certain assumptions. Now, there is less consensus about the medium-term path of interest rates, and I, I, I don't see that that calls into question the, the, the exercise. I think that is a, one of the more useful things to come out of the dot plot, to know. I guess the the dot plot tells you something about the present more than it tells you something about the future, right? It tells you right now that maybe based on what Felix is saying, that there's not a lot of certainty. <laughs> and sometimes it tells you there is a lot of certainty, but it doesn't tell you actually what's going you, to maybe happen. Maybe there's not a lot of consensus on I, where I think, people see it going. 
I think there is a lot of consensus. And I think there is a lot of certainty about the coming year, right? If you look at the dots for year end 2023, they're very closely clustered. And so we ca- we do have on the FOMC a very clear consensus about where interest rates are going over the next 12 months. And I think that is useful information as well. So, you know, we know that there's consensus and certainty over where we think things are going to go over the next 12 months with the proviso that things can change. And, you know, if things change, then rates will change. But there is much less consensus and uncertainty over the two years following that. And I, I think all of that is useful. Explain to me why it wouldn't be useful to know that. Well, I guess the question is, is there an alternative way of providing forward guidance that might add more utility? See, this is the thing which really, um, I think, gets to the heart of it, which is, what is the utility of forward guidance? It was clear what the utility of forward guidance was um, in the, say, 2010, 2011 range, when Ben Bernanke really wanted to persuade markets that rates were going to be low for a long time, that the Fed was committed to keeping rates low for a long time, that even if inflation started going up, rates would still be low for a long time, and that you could make long-term investment decisions based on the you know justified true belief that late rates were going to be low for a long time. That is the purpose of forward guidance. When you hit the zero lower bound for interest rates, and you still want to make monetary policy looser, what you do is you commit to keeping rates at zero for a long time. And that is a, that is effective a form of um, cutting rates um, compared to if you if the market expects rates to be going up in a few months, then you know you're you're making monetary conditions looser. So in in that zero interest rate world, it is clear what the utility of for guidance was. It was basically a way of cutting rates in a world where you couldn't cut rates anymore and they were at that zero lower bound. Now we are not at a zero lower bound. And so we have that interesting question of what is the utility of forward guidance? And that's, I mean, I would throw that back to you. If you, if you think that there is a, you know, a better way of doing forward guidance that it has more utility, like what is the point of forward guidance at this point in a world like this? Well, isn't it true that, you know, Jay Powell's Fed has been a lot more transparent about what's happening there and what they're thinking is, and that seems to be, a, you know, directionality that's not, it's not going to reverse itself. So so I'm just going to repeat the question, which is, like, why is Jay Powell being more transparent? Historically, central banks have not been transparent. Um, for many, many years, the Fed wouldn't even say what the Fed funds target was. You just had to kind of work it out by looking at the market. Um, why would the Fed want to be more transparent, both about what it's doing in the present and what it's expecting to do in the future? Well, in, in theory, if they think that uncertainty is damaging, then forward guidance reduces that, at least in terms of giving people some kind of sense of where things are going. And then, you know, people don't panic because they don't know. So it's a, it's a panic minimization exercise? I think so. <laughs> well, what, do you, what do you think, Emily? Um, I think the transparency comes from an inclination to, yeah, reduce uncertainty, reduce volatility in the markets. So everyone kind of prices in what the Fed does. There's no like big surprise shock when you learn if they're raising rates by, you know, 0.75 or 0.5 or whatever. Um, it just makes things a little calmer. I think I think that is probably true. And I think that there is a lot of very wonkish concern, genuine concern about treasury markets and especially money markets, short-term treasury markets between like overnight and three months um, within the New York Fed and and even at the board level, that those markets are not quite as robust as people would like. Every so often they kind of go kablooey and sometimes the Fed needs to intervene and that and when and just to be clear when we're talking about volatility in the markets we're not talking about volatility in the stock market right we're talking about volatility in like the t-bill market which is meant to be a very very boring and safe market and they have this idea perhaps i'm not sure that forward guidance will reduce volatility in the t-bill market i'm not sure about that because t-bills by their nature mature within like three months and so what happens to interest rates in you know a year or two years or three years shouldn't have any impact on T bills at all. 
Yeah, but I, I think it's bigger picture too. I think there is a concern with the stock market as well. And you saw that back in November when everyone expected at first the Fed to raise rates by half a basis point by 0.5. And um, at some point, the Fed decided, no, it was going to do a higher cut. And they not only you know told everyone about it at the meeting, but in advance of the meeting, word got out that this was happening. And I think part of that was they they want wanted it, the markets, the stock markets, to adjust and to not be totally surprised by that because they knew it would really whipsaw people. And it was like front running the information on purpose to kind of like get the story out and sell it. You know, they're like selling a story, marketing their moves ahead of time. I would love you to unpack that a little bit. So, you know, so Nick Timoreos comes out with a article in the Wall Street Journal, which everyone basically reads as I am taking dictation from Jay Powell and it's going to be a 75 point hike, not a 50 point hike. And the market mm -hmm. reacts quite strongly, like when that Wall Street Journal article comes out, the market moves um, up or down, whichever direction it moves, you know, as a reaction to that. Why is it better for the Fed? for the market to move on a Nick Timoreos article than it is for the market to move on an actual Fed release slash decision? That's a really good question. And I'm going to speculate on the answer. I don't know the answer. But if I was a federal official, I'd rather Nick Timoreos and the Wall Street Journal move the market than me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want my announcement to be not very exciting in that way. So why not front run it and have the media do that work? I think also the, the Fed has a PR problem right now where people think that it has more power than it does. And, and being perceived as consciously trying to move the market is problematic. So you would want these the, this kind of information to come out through... Uh, you know, a, a news outlet or something instead of saying I mean, it I think the Fed does have a lot of power. The entire decline in the stock market in 2022, the whole reason why people think there's going to be a recession, all of this is a function of what the Fed is doing with interest rates. It is almost impossible to overstate how powerful the Fed really is. Which makes it funny that I didn't even, maybe I forgot that people had like conspiracy theories about the Fed. Since its power is there, it's totally naked and obvious. And it's, it's, I mean, it con controlling the the whole stock market falling this year, I, I, the crypto industry kind of falling apart. I mean, yeah, the, the fact that mortgage rates have gone from like two two and a half percent to seven percent, like the yeah. only reason that mortgages did that is because of what the Fed did with interest rates. I mean, but yeah, so we it, we just to bring it back to the dot plot, like the the reason why they do the dot plot, it is very much a signal to the market, and what they have said on the record many times publicly is we think the market is taking this signal the wrong way. And we think people are paying too much attention to the signal. And I think the, the fed thinks that the market is taking the dot plot the wrong way. And I think the distinction that they try and make is that there's a difference between an expectation and the prediction and they're not committing themselves to raising interest rates or keeping interest rates low or anything like that. It's not like a it's not like a way of binding their future action so much as it's just a way of them trying to get a feel for where what trajectory they think interest rates are on. But they change their mind a lot. And I think one of the things that, that Jay Powell has done a lot is say, listen, I have no idea what I'm going to do next month because I need another month's worth of data before I know that. And he's very open about that kind of inherent uncertainty. He's like, you know, if inflation comes down, I'll do one thing. If inflation goes up, I'll do another thing. If the, you know, GDP starts crashing, I'll do, you know, like all of these different things are playing into his decisions. And I think people take the dot plots as some kind of a commitment to do something regardless of what the data comes out in between. And of course, it's not that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing I've been thinking of big picture, not just about the dot plot, but like f watching people make these like end of year predictions and surveys about what people think are going to happen in the future. They're really just about what's happening now and how you feel now. No one knows what's going to happen in the future. I mean, let's look back to January 2020, like no one 
obviously knew what was coming at all. Like the there's the no yield way. curve knew <laughs> the ne- the yield curve knew there was going to be a, re- a, a pandemic. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But but there's like this endless hunger from from people to to know what's going to happen in the future, which obviously makes sense and is very human and understandable. So there's this like weird ecosystem of predictions and projections that everyone pays attention to. And it's just really like a lot of wasted noise. Well, I think also it's harder for people to deal with uncertainty now because we're in such an information-rich environment that they just expect that, you know, that all uncertainty can sort of be reduced because there's data out there somewhere that says you know, what's going to happen. Yeah, you would think they've learned, though, from the past two, th- almost three years that, like... Nobody ever learns. Experts, <laughs> experts don't know. And, like, in an uncertain atmosphere, they're learning in real time, like everyone else. It's impossible to say a lot of things with certainty when, you know, everything's changing so fast. Yeah, and I, I would actually disagree with, with what Elizabeth said, that, like, I think people have learned, especially during the pandemic, that the limits of knowledge right we mm-hmm. had two solid years at least of basically thinking that we knew things and then having to throw it out the window you know it's mm-hmm. a germ it's not a germ like you know all the, remember all the hand washing and the, you know like there was i washed eggs exactly like there, we we had you know what we thought how we thought about vaccines you know they, they, they would be really difficult to create we could never get them by this date we can get them by this date herd immunity we can get herd immunity. like we're going to abolish the virus, all of these things that we thought we knew for a while and then we had to update because we learned new things, right? We have Mm -hmm. been in this amazing period of having to learn things and update our priorities and change our minds over and over and over again. And it Mm -hmm. is becoming more and more obvious that, you know, it is impossible to be able to look at the future with any particular certainty. And I do think we've learned that. And I do think that's new. I think some some people have learned that, but you also see a huge backlash that there were course corrections over the course of the pandemic. You know, people calling for uh, Anthony Fauci to be hauled before Congress or locked up. That's a reaction to people expecting that, you know, the experts and the authorities in this situation would be able to perfectly predict what was going to happen. Yeah. That anger is the reaction to it. And that's an ongoing theme d- dating back before the pandemic, just the anger at the people who are supposed to know things at the yeah. el- elites and yeah but, but exactly it, it is it has become obvious to those of us in the you know reality-based community at least that <laughs> um you know that no one knows things so it's, no one knows the future <laughs> anthony fauci doesn't know everything about the virus before the research has been done the fed doesn't know everything about inflation and interest rates before the data comes out you know there's the future is unknowable. And I, I think that like Jay Powell actually came out in his press conference this week and used that word unknowable about the whole yes. question of whether there's going to be a recession, right? Like, let's be very, very open and honest about this un- the, the fundamental sort of epistemic fog that we are facing. And the dot plot looks like a very clear chart, You know, it has time along one axis and interest rates on the other axis and lovely little dots and each dot is in a very specific place. And, you know, and it creates this illusion of certainty because people love looking at charts and saying charts are true. Charts by their nature feel true. Whereas, Whereas in fact, the dot plot is just incredibly fuzzy and it's probably never been fuzzier than it is right now. Yep. It's just a goofball survey, but it looks fancy. It's a goofball (laughs) survey which insists that every... FOMC member give a point estimate to where they think rates are going to be, you know? I think if they changed it to ranges and bars, that would probably be an improvement. See, that's the answer to my question about how this could be better toward <laughs> guardians. <laughs> Our colleagues at Axios Macro are doing, like, um, they're asking readers to give their predictions for the economy next year, and I filled out a survey myself, and it was just like, I, it was just a total... It was a lark, a goof. Uh, I don't know. It was like, what do you think the inflation rate will be by the end of next year? I'm like, um, four. If if you ask, (laughs) if you ask the, um, if you ask the the sort of professional predictors, like how to do that kind of a survey, what you don't do is you don't ask people for a point estimate for where they think something is going to be next year. What you do is you say what is your 90% confidence interval for where inflation is going to be next year? What What is the range of numbers whereby you're 90% confident that it's going to fall within that range? 
And oh, that is actually a more like interesting question. Three to ten. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. No, but that's that's a very useful piece of information, right? Is that if you ask for people like today, what is their ninety percent confidence interval for inflation? That range is going to be much, much wider than it would have been two years ago. And the fact that the mm. range has widened so much over the past two years is a very important piece of macroeconomic data. Okay, so I said three to ten, Felix. <laughs> uh, you're asking me what my 90% confidence interval, interval is for inflation in 2023? Yeah. Um, I would say two and a half to eight. Ooh. Elizabeth. Elizabeth? <laughs> I think mine's a little <laughs> tighter than that, but it's around two and a half to maybe six. So I'm the most pessimistic, I guess, about inflation. Yeah. Also, if you add strange decimals to the end of your estimates, it, it makes you sound um, like you're more sophisticated <laughs> about these things. <laughs> okay. Right, right in, chaps and chapesses. All you lovely Slate Money listeners, Slate Money at Slate.com. What is your 90% confidence interval for inflation in 2023? <laughs> Um, we will do something with that data or we won't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll make a dot plot. We'll make a dot plot. Emily. Felix. You wanted to talk about Lena Khan. Yeah, I did. What what is she what is she doing with our friends in Redmond, Washington? Selena Khan is the chair of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And um last week, uh right before we were gonna tape, she sued to block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of the video game maker Activision because she says it's anti-competitive. The FTC says that Microsoft buying this video game maker is anti-competitive. And the reason why is that um, if Microsoft has a video game console, the Xbox, and Activision makes the, I believe, top-selling video game Call of Duty. And the worry, I mean, there's other worries, but the big worry and the way you can understand it is that Microsoft would make Call of Duty only work on its own gaming console, and that would make the industry less competitive because, you know, PlayStation wouldn't be able to offer the most popular video game, so everyone would run to get an Xbox, and that would decimate other video game console companies. So she is trying to head this off at the pass and suing to block this acquisition. And, you know, it's a big test for her. She has been trying to make the FTC aggressive again. And this is probably it's her most and the FTC's most aggressive move yet. I mean, Microsoft has limitless money to fight this, and the FTC does not. So it's sort of a big well, test I, well, for her. It kind of does. But, like, okay, so here's... This just, I feel like there's the actual thing she's doing in the, and, and then there's this sort of like stated reason thing. Mm -hmm. And you're giving the stated reason, which is they, they could restrict Call of Duty to just the Xbox. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft has said, no, we're not going to do that. And Activision mm -hmm. has said, no, we're not going to do that. And Lena Khan could just be like, can you enter into a, into a consent decree saying you're not going to do that? Mm -hmm. And they would be sure, no problem. And they would sign a consent decree and then like problem solved, right? Mm. You don't need to sue the, you don't need to sue to block the entire merger if all you, if all you really need is a consent decree saying we will continue to release Call of Duty for PlayStation, right? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the, the remedy here is not, does not fit the complaint. I feel like the real reason why she's suing to prevent the merger is a much bigger, broader theory and principle that tech giants should not be allowed to do acquisitions in general, and certainly not major acquisitions. That once you reach a certain size, once you are Alphabet, Microsoft, um, Amazon, that's that should be like you can you can grow organically. Like there's no rule against like you know growing. But you shouldn't be allowed to grow via acquisition because already you are too big. Like once you are too big, you shouldn't be able to acquire more people and become even bigger that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a cynical way of framing it. She would say, "No, that's she, not cynical." I think I think she genuinely believes that. But the belief is in that corporate concentration, companies becoming too big, buying up a lot of other smaller companies, is bad for consumers. Exactly, and I think that's a, a genuinely held belief on the part of Lena Khan. What do you think her threshold is for what constitutes too big? The tech giants. You know, as I said, Google, 
Microsoft, Amazon, possibly Facebook, probably Facebook. Um, kind of that's about it. I can't, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. Um, she also, the FTC under Khan, has sued to block Lockheed Martin from acquiring Aerojet Rocketdyne Holdings. I don't know what that is, sorry. And has um, prevented NVIDIA from buying so- some part of SoftBank Group's something, something. Um, so the, she's done other stuff. Yeah, and so like those things are are genuine market concentration things, right? right. Where you're, you know, you're like an arms dealer and you're buying another arms dealer and then you have a monopoly on arms dealing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um the fact is that Microsoft is a relatively small player in video games. And so, you know, if it buys Activision, it will become a big player in video games. But video games are one of the few areas of technology that you don't have, like, just one or two giants. And the big tech companies are not the big giants in video games. Well, I would just correct you a little bit because there's a difference between the consoles and the the video game makers, right? So... The Xbox is 30% of the console market, which is a big chunk. It's PlayStation has like 70 and Xbox is 30 and that's like it. Um, so they don't own all the video game makers, um, but that doesn't mean they don't have like a big spot on the video game market. You know what I mean? Because you need a console to play. This is also a little bit, to me, part of why her her argument, I, I think, is sort of weak in, in its stated premise. The idea that a consumer would want to play one game so badly, and Call of Duty is is the bulk of Activision's franchise. It's got like thirty billion in gross revenue over lifetime. Um, but I, I, as somebody who has video gamer people in my house, I, I can't imagine switching to a console and exclusively moving to Xbox just because you wanted to play Call of Duty. So even if that was the ostensible concern, why not? If, sound- if you can, if you can play all games on. Xbox, but you can't play all games on PlayStation. Is that not a reason to buy Xbox? Yes. Well, not if you already have a PlayStation and a million games that are already equipped for PlayStation. Like, would you switch to an Xbox just to maybe? Play? Well, I mean, like, everyone updates their console. consoles on a semi-regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, at some point, your PlayStation gets old, and you're like, "Do I upgrade to a new PlayStation or do I upgrade to a new Xbox?" And if the Xbox has Call of Duty and the PlayStation doesn't, I would say that would be a major reason to go for the Xbox. Or am I thinking about this crazily wrong? I don't know. I imagine that there are switching costs, though. I mean, I think she. Corporate concentration is a problem. I do think it's part of, I know we talk about inflation too much, but it's part of the reason we have inflation. I think that's been overstated, but is true. And if Microsoft, which owns a big chunk of the console market, then owns one of the biggest video game makers, that is like a ripe opportunity for some monopoly action. It doesn't have to be in Call of Duty. It could be some other game we haven't thought of yet, but it's definitely a risk. And she's trying to to head it off. Will she be successful? Maybe not. And I think this is another thing that Lena Khan has done a lot of, which is basically saying you can be a platform, but if you're a platform, don't also provide the things that are consumed on that platform. She's like, you know, Amazon, you can be a platform for third-party sellers to sell goods on the internet, but if you're going to be that, if you're going to have that Amazon marketplace, then don't also be the manufacturer of goods and create your own umbrellas and sell them and compete with those other sellers on the marketplace and give yourself an unfair advantage. Um, You know, it'll be like Spotify buying a record label or something like that, right? It's like you can, like, it's, I think, an entirely reasonable stance to take to say, um, you know, once you've decided to get into the console business, then that basically should preclude you from being in the video video game business at all. Or at least preclude you from buying a huge, huge, huge video game maker. Right, right. And, or, you know, or basically, um, you know, we have this issue with... Um, apps on the iOS app store, right? That um, Apple was always very um, squirrely about like letting Chrome be an app because they're like, we want everyone to use Safari. And it's like, well, if you're going to be a platform where anyone can make an app, you have to open it up and you shouldn't be 
trying to just push your own apps. You shouldn't be like preloading all of the Apple apps where everyone else needs to you know, download them. And you shouldn't be forcing everyone else to pay 30% taxes where you don't need to pay any taxes. It is a bit unfair that Apple gets to, you know, ha- ha- does have a clear unfair advantage on its own apps over everyone else. Um, if it's going to be a platform, it should just be the platform. So I can see that argument. Although so far, I don't think she's really persuaded any judge in you know any antitrust case um, mm-hmm. of, of that argument. But I, I think she does hold that argument ge- genuinely. And I think many European regulators kind of believe the same thing too. One other thing I, I learned in thinking about this topic for today, um, I spoke to Axios's FTC knowledge guru, Ashley Gold, and she was telling me that ever since the Reagan, Reagan era, the FTC has been pretty weak and like Lena Khan's trying to bring back the FTC. And I guess back in the 1970s, there was an FTC head called Michael Perchuk, who was like, a, everyone hated. He is the reason, he is like the impetus for the term nanny state. Um, he is the guy responsible for putting uh, warning labels on cigarettes. And he tried when he was at the FTC to regulate um commercials aimed at children, TV commercials aimed at children. And for this, he was like kicked out <laughs> of the of the agency and weakened. And ever since then, the FTC was relatively weak. And now Lena Khan and her people over there are trying to like bring back the 70s. Right. I mean, Ronald Reagan was the avatar of laissez-faire, right? Just, you know, the, the, the invisible hand of the market will wind up doing much better than government busybodies. And I think, yeah, there's, the um, consensus is swinging back there. Yeah, you, but you could see, like, she didn't decide to bring back that consumer advocacy piece of FTC. Like, like maybe a different FTC chair would have spent the past year, instead of going after these kinds of acquisitions, would have focused on like crypto and crypto advertising. You know what I mean? And and done that. They could have done that. It's interesting that this is what they chose. Right. And in fact, it was the SEC which wound up going after the yeah. crypto advertising more than the FTC. Or the so, FCC. There are so many of these organizations which have <laughs> some potential jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. But talking of crypto, we should have a little update on the on the FTX SBF situation. Um, Elizabeth, what is the latest? We have a man in jail now? Uh, yes, SBF has been arrested uh, at his place in the Bahamas. And what's uh, a little bit funny about this is the, the U.S. is going after him, not the Bahamian government. Yeah, this is um, something I wrote about in my newsletter this week, this concept of extraterritoriality that basically everyone there was this like fiction that the ftx was a bahamas-based organization that alameda research was a hong kong-based organization that they went to pretty great lengths to try and prevent u.s residents and u.s citizens from using their services precisely to try and bring themselves out of the purview of u.s regulatory oversight and yet, when push came to shove, you know, in swoops, the SEC with a complaint, the CFTC with a complaint, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York with a complaint. Um, and ultimately, you have the Department of Justice phoning up the Bahamas police and saying, can you arrest this man and throw him in jail? And they say, yes, OK, we will do that. Meanwhile, the Bahamas authorities are basically just on Twitter going, uh, we kind of disagree with something that bankruptcy court said yo oh by the way the bankruptcy is happening in delaware not in the bahamas so this whole idea that ftx was a foreign company and that it was not really regulated by americans seems to have been revealed to be a complete fiction also i think if you screw over enough uh powerful and wealthy americans it's inevitable that there would be a u.s regulatory response right well, that's the interesting question, right? Is that, like, how many powerful and wealthy Americans did Sam Bankman fried actually screw over? Given how difficult it was for Americans to use FTX, like, you know, there were always stories about Americans, like, firing up VPNs and trying to get around the KYC rules and all the rest of it, the New York customer rules. Um, like, yeah, sure, it was probably possible for Americans to do it, but they needed to be super, super sophisticated and deliberately try and circumvent a bunch of, you know, FTX saying, please don't do this. 
So, you know, I'm I, thinking more about like the, the investor class, the people who put money into FTX, like people who bought the people who bought yeah. the equity of FTX, like they you know, I mean, I think Sequoia can look after themselves. I don't think the Department of Justice or this, you know, the CFTC particularly minds if Sequoia makes a bad VC investment. So, Felix, can you unpack for us the 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 reason the US is able to to file all these lawsuits? Like what is the why is it that this Bahamian company can come under the strong arm of the U.S. law? Like, what's the reasoning behind this? Um, so there's a narrow answer and there's a broad answer to that. The narrow answer is, um, as Matt Levine would put it, everything is securities fraud. Basically, everything is wire fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, uh, you know, wire any money to anyone internationally, like some U.S. entity is going to be involved and they can find a way in that way. Like there's always a there's always some kind of a legal backdoor which allows an American prosecutor to find some jurisdictional, uh, you know, uh, ability to, to, to bring a suit. The, the bigger, more important answer is that the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency and as such, the Treasury Department and the U.S. in general, the U.S. government in general, really consider all global financial movements to be their problem. They are in charge of making sure that the world is operating smoothly in terms of international finance. When I was covering sovereign debt restructuring and like Uruguay would go bankrupt, um, you know, it would be, there would be like, task forces and people at the New York Fed and at the U.S. Treasury would be working, you know, round the clock trying to help Uruguay. You know, no other country would do that. It's this really important part of American soft power. Like Matt Levine just wrote about an SEC case, well, a, a joint Department of Justice SEC case against Danske Bank in Denmark, which owned a Finnish bank, which had a branch in Estonia that had Russian clients doing some kind of money laundering thing. And it was the Americans who wound up firing, fining Danske Bank $2 billion for not having the correct anti-money laundering controls, right? It wasn't the Estonians. It wasn't the Finns. It wasn't the Danes. It was the Americans because the Americans love to just consider themselves to be the top financial cop in the world. And if there's some kind of thing they don't like happening anywhere in the world, given the fact that everyone transacts in dollars, they will always find a way to be able to to stomp in and make fines. Every bank in the world needs to have a presence in the United States. And so they, you know, every dollar is in one way or another held in the United States. So they always have that jurisdiction. So, so it's the... Any bank or financial institution, that's when the U.S. is go- is doing some shenanigans. That's when the U.S. is going to step in. Or, or even just any dollar. You know, if you wire dollars to FTX or to Alameda or however, you know, you manage to get dollars to them, like, that's a dollar. And that dollar mm-hmm. is an American dollar. And the minute it's an American dollar, the Americans have um, control. And they, and, you know, and they really do prosecute their own, like, geopolitical you know, axe grinding campaigns, they will put sanctions on Iran or Cuba or someone like that. And and then it doesn't matter if you're a French bank operating in Africa, you still can't, op- you, you still can't do business with an Iranian because the Americans will come down on you like a ton of bricks. Even, you know, even if you are not American and you have no presence in America. If Sam Bankman-Fried had done FTX in a more powerful country, like, I don't know, France, UK, some other kind of country, not the Bahamas, would it have been harder to go after him? Would the US be less likely to do that? Well, also, I think you have to consider that, you know, at least one of the things he's charged with is campaign finance fraud. Yeah, which, oh, yeah, I forgot joke. about that. Yeah, like, somewhere in that, like, hodgepodge of things, he was, he was charged with campaign finance fraud. But yeah, I think one of the things that, we should really not lose sight of with SPF in particular is that he was an American. He is an American. Um, He spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. He was trying to, you know, influence the course of US politics. He wanted FTX to be more closely regulated by the Americans. He presented himself as like 
uh, you know, he was sponsoring sports arenas in Miami. He was signing up American celebrities like Tom Brady and Kevin O'Leary and um, Larry David, right? So there's like, you know, his headquarters were in the Bahamas, but he looked and quacked like an American. Yeah, I was thinking he brought this on himself. Like if he had just had that company out in the Bahamas, didn't do a bunch of TV ads, congressional appearances, magazine profiles, campaign donations, and just quietly like taking customer money, used it for his own, <laughs> for himself, you know, and done his little fraud without all that, those bells and whistles, the hammer of the law would be less hard. Yeah, and the, and the Bahamas also are like, you know, they're very much in the American sphere of influence, right? They're a very small country, you know, in the American time zone, in the Caribbean, very easy to get to from the United States. You know, it's not like, as you say, yeah, it's not like he was in Vietnam. Yeah, also, Emily, I think he's constitutionally incapable of of shutting up. You know, the fact that <laughs> when all of this came down, he just went out and did a million interviews, which surely his lawyers wanted to murder him. You know, I think his, his personality is probably just geared toward this kind of fraud. Right. And I guess he, you need to do that kind of marketing so you can get all the billions of dollars that you can then use for yourself. You know what I mean? So uh, what are you going to do? This is how <laughs> there's no other way this could have gone. Um, I think we should have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number this week? $240. That was was the share price of Carvana at the beginning of the year. <laughs> oh my God, I love this story. It's the dumbest story. And now, <laughs> now the, the last time I checked, the share price of Carvana is around $5.47, um, a 98% fall. This company um, was named Worst Company of the Year by Yahoo Finance. It has just seen all its money go bye-bye. There's whispers of bankruptcy. If I would say an, an absolute certainty of bankruptcy if you look at the price that the bonds are trading at. certainty of bankruptcy. It is the poster child of pandemic rise and fall. So, yeah, no, the Carvana, the, the sheer dumbness of Carvana is something we should mention. It's a secondhand car trading company, basically, right? The idea is that, you know, if you want to buy a secondhand car, what you do is you go onto Craigslist and you're like, oh, look, someone's selling a Volvo and you phone them up and you agree to a price and then you go, you know, you you take an Uber over to their house and you hand them a check and you drive off their Volvo. You know, it's a, it's a fundamentally local business because cars are very large, very heavy things that mm -hmm. live in certain neighborhoods. You know, people, you know, don't drive their cars generally all over the country. They generally keep them near their home. And so that's how most secondhand car deals work, except for if you're looking for a very specific car or for a particular bargain, um, maybe, you know, you want a very specific Volvo and there's only one of it and you're in New York and this Volvo is in San Diego. And you're like, you wouldn't normally be searching Craigslist San Diego for a a car because that would be dumb because how on earth are you meant to get this Volvo from San Diego to New York? But you find this one car, or maybe it's just a common car and it's a bit cheaper in San Diego. And the value proposition of Carvana was we are going to have a flat rate delivery fee for any car from anywhere in the country. And so the only time people used it was when they were buying cars that were thousands of miles away. And then Carvana would have to lose money on every single transaction because it would have to ship these cars halfway across the country the whole time and it was just not economical and the whole thing made no sense at all and yeah they just didn't understand adverse selection at all i mean the idea that the process of buying a used car could be improved is is probably a good idea you know but they they took it too far um elizabeth what's your number my number comes from a, a bloomberg story written by friend of the pod alexander lange and it's about my number is 125 percent, and that's the increase in demand for mall Santas since 2020. And apparently there's a big shortage, according to something called the International Brotherhood of Real Bearded Santas, which is, describes itself <laughs> as the world's largest org of professional Santas, Mrs. Clauses, and Associates. Uh, membership in the organization plummeted from 
2,000 Santas in 2020 to 1,400 now. So there are not enough Santas to go around. The great Santa shortage of 2022. Um, If you don't get any presents this year, that's why. There just aren't enough Santas (laughs) to go around. Um, My... um, I love this number so much. I I am I I rarely keep my own number till last, but like this week, I'm going last because it is such a glorious number. The number is one thousand six hundred, which is a number of dollars. It's a number of dollars that you get on a Jeopardy square. Now, I am not a mass consumer. I'm not a great consumer of U.S. popular culture, but I understand this whole conception of Jeopardy being this very famous game on the telly, and <laughs> there are there are different values for different questions, and they go from 100 to 200, and then all the way up to 1600 dollars. And this week on Jeopardy, if you had a 1600 dollar answer to which you needed to guess the question, Emily, this is the answer. Do you have the question the answer is <laughs> kathy o'neill's weapons of this punning kind of destruction looks at how a- algorithms and big data control us <laughs> what is math yes yes weapons of math destruction kathy o'neill the original co-host of slate money the great and amazing kathy o'neill was an answer on jeopardy Wow, she's made it. She has arrived. <laughs> That's well sweet. done, Kathy. That that is you have truly, yeah, truly arrived at this point, and we can't wait for your next book and to have you back on the pod. Um, and on that note, that's it. It's over for us this week. Um, we actually, it's not completely over. If you are a Slate Plus subscriber, we're going to talk about holiday parties for the rest of you. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to. Anna Phillips for producing and we will be back next week with more Slate Money. Elizabeth, you famously have 15 different jobs. How many holiday parties were you invited to this year uh i'm not sure but i haven't been to any of them but i have noticed the the uptick Aww. holiday parties are back now that pandemic is not over but people are pretending it is everybody wants to get out and go have you know end of the year celebrations so they're happening i'm just not going to any of them i i blew off one last night um emily i know you came to the axios business team dinner Yes. We sat next to each other. It's true. <laughs> but that was my only... I mean, I guess we haven't heard about a slate party. Are we not there, there used to be a slate party. And there was <laughs> yeah. no slate party. Uh, Anna, <laughs> Anna Phillips, join in. Was there a slate party that we were not invited to? There was one last night. <gasps> oh, <laughs> my God. Did you guys wow. not get invited? No. Wow. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> OMG, I was NFI to the late <laughs> holiday party, WTF. <laughs> so wait, so is a holiday party something you want to get invited to yet don't want to go to? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not saying I would have <laughs> gone to the late pa- holiday party, but, you know, I, I would nice have appreciated it. It is nice <laughs> to feel wanted, exactly. Um, Elizabeth, had you, had you been invited to the late holiday party, would you have turned up? Uh, what was I doing last night? <laughs> <laughs> I was washing my hair last night. I, I think it, I, you know, I would have totally evaluated it based on where it was and, you know, like what the... Sucking of teeth sound. Well, now they obviously have to take the three of us to dinner, or give us a bonus or something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, wow. Should we, though, talk about holiday parties, bigger picture, and not just air our grievances? <laughs> I think Slate Plus is a place for us to air our grievances and to learn from Anna Phillips that we were not invited to the Slate Holiday Party. This is the main purpose of the segment. Um, Let's talk about holiday parties and how they've evolved over the years. Are they still, like, we were talking about the Slate Party that, fine, we weren't invited to. Um, Have they become more smaller? I mean, when I was starting out in 
in the media business, they were huge. One company I worked for had a holiday party at the Museum of Natural History. Um, another year, it was like at the huge post office, a postal building, you know, in, in on 8th Avenue. And there was very lavish and like open bar. And it was pretty wild. No one was photocopying pictures of their butt. Like that's a different era. Um, but what era of holiday party are we in now? Yeah, I remember crashing the MTV Network's holiday party at Hammerstein Ballroom once. There you go. Yeah, that was fun. So that, so that doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. Those no, big that parties. That does not happen anymore. That was I remember when Gorka used to do a rundown of all the big media yes. holiday parties. Were you we was that was that Elizabeth Spires era Gorka that you would just like do a list of everyone's holiday party and where it was and where, how to crash it? Yeah, I think we did that. <laughs> I probably crashed all of them too. Yeah. So you used to like holiday parties. Yeah, when I was, you know, uh young and stupid and or younger and dumber than I am now. <laughs> and I, and I still what, like holiday parties. I just uh I'm wary of uh work related holiday parties. I don't like enforced fun. <laughs> but okay, so talk about that. Like isn't it nice for your company, your employer to say like, here, we appreciate you, like have a drink, have some food, like enjoy yourself, like we throw this party for you. Is that not a good management tactic? No, I think it's good if it's a, if it's a good party. I, I had a, <laughs> my first year at um, the Observer, I, Jared tried to move, or Jared Kushner, the owner, tried to move the holiday party to Dylan's Candy Bar. And yeah. no one was even sure if there was going to be uh, booze. And there was mm -hmm. a, a nearly a staff revolt. <laughs> so I had to <laughs> talk Jared into please having it somewhere else and allocating a little bit of money. Because people did really care about it. So when mm -hmm. you have a place where everybody's just kind of underpaid anyway, it's like, uh, then, then yeah, I think it's important. So, so where was it and how much did it cost? Uh, I don't remember the name of the place. It was this sort of like underground club, though. It was definitely more a, a like, let's have a rager Christmas party than, you know, a stayed in the conference room, um, polite thing. So there's got to be a middle ground between rager and in the conference room, right? Or maybe there's. Well, not. I think also. Well, you, know, you, know what people... the middle, you know what the middle ground is, Emily? The middle ground is having a civilized round table meal in Chinatown. Right. Yeah, that was nice. That was a, a good compromise. It was just our team at dinner. Yeah. But it wasn't a holiday party. Well, it I, wasn't not a holiday party. I also think people were so depressed by the pandemic era Zoom holiday parties. Oh, oh that was, that they was wanna, the worst. They want to, you know, yeah. go back to real ones. I never did that. I was invited to those and was just like, I don't think I'll be doing that. No, no, thank you. I was mailed a cocktail kit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's a little bit desperate. Okay, Slate Plus folks, if you have any holiday party tales, let us know. Slate at slate.com. Otherwise, um, yeah, just enjoy the relaxing nature of not having to go to a holiday party this year. Either way, it's good.